you're passionate about transforming retail operations and improving performance, plus you're accountable for key change projects and programs in your company, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. The date is the 15th of June, the grand reopening of physical retail, here in the UK at least. Hey, Oliver Banks, and welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. This one is episode 86. And yes, that is right. Non-essential shops here in the UK are opening their doors once again to mark a little bit of life returning to normal at least a socially distanced style of normal. What have we seen today from the stores opening? Well, first and foremost, let's be honest, this is just one day. This is not necessarily a pattern for how retail will go in the future. In fact, I'd actually say this is absolutely not going to be a normal day. So I don't want to draw too many conclusions from this one single day of trading here in the UK. But what have we seen? Well, We've seen that people are ready to return to shops. Not everyone, but there are absolutely some people. So is physical retail dead? No, that's the answer. We've seen a selection of different safety protocols from social distancing barriers, perspex screens, lots of PPE, all these different things, queuing outside as well. So what can we draw from that? Many retailers have done their homework to get ready for today as you would probably expect. And we've seen a number of different scenes where the general public have completely ignored the social distancing guidelines, particularly in Bista Village, which I wasn't there myself, thankfully. Looking at some of those pictures, it's absolutely rammed full of people keen to get in there and get a bargain. So that makes me slightly worried about the potential of a second peak coming back from a coronavirus perspective. But it also does show us that there are a lot of people that are not as worried about this coronavirus as others. Some retailers have decided to go in with discounts. Others have resisted and they've stayed full price. So overall, what does that tell us? Well, for me personally, nothing has been that surprising from today. We knew people would come back for physical retail. We knew it wasn't for everyone. We knew there were going to be elements about social distancing. And they're going to stay for the foreseeable future. But above all, don't draw too many conclusions from this single one day alone. The bottom line is physical retail still has a place in the world. And as such, physical places still very much have a place in the world as well. And that is what we are diving into in today's episode. We're taking a longer term look at what physical places, high streets, shopping centres, malls, etc can look forward to in the world of retail. And to help me dive into this today, I've got two fantastic guests. Together, they are grounded places. Separately, they are Claire Bailey, the retail champion, and Roger Smith, founder of insight agency Grounded. Both were speakers at the inaugural Retail Transformation Live event. But if you don't know them, then Claire Bailey is the retail champion. She's a speaker, an author, a highly regarded retail commentator often seen on TV and heard on radio. Plus, she's a consultant specializing in business processes and a self-confessed supply chain geek. 
Roger, meanwhile, is the owner and director at Grounded, using Shopper Insight to help brands and retailers to understand the issues and opportunities in stores today. And together, as you'll hear, they have forged Grounded Places, using insight and practical advice to help business improvement districts, place managers, town centre managers and local authorities to understand the issues that are affecting shoppers and visitors in their towns or cities. So in this episode, we are diving into the future of the high street and of physical places. Show notes are available over at obandco.uk slash 86. Right, let's jump straight on into this one. It's a slightly longer conversation than normal, but full of golden nuggets. Here we go. So today I'm delighted to welcome Roger Smith and Claire Bailey to the show. Roger, Claire, how are things? Very well, thank you. Very good indeed, thank you. Yeah. And you were both super speakers at the first round of Retail Transformation Live. So thank you very much for sharing all those golden nuggets there. And I'm really excited to jump into a very similar topic that you were talking about at that virtual event, all about the future of the high street and the future of places as well. Certainly, it's an interesting time in this sort of corona pandemic and so on as to what that is going to be looking like. Let's jump straight on in and think about the future of physical places. You know, we're seeing, well, even before corona, we were seeing more vacant shops and so on. But particularly now, I think we're going to be seeing more struggling retailers. Anchor stores are beginning to empty out. We've got social distancing restrictions and limitations coming in. What does the future of physical place look like? Is there a future of physical place as well, I suppose? That's a really interesting question. And I think that the difficulty is that nobody can really answer it without a crystal ball. Obviously, though, if you look at the history of our high streets going back over even 300 years, they have always been the social hub of a place, whether they have been supplying retail in terms of food products and so on and so forth, or whether they're providing social in terms of the the more modern experience of coffee shops and so on. They have always been part of a community, and I think they always will be. The difficulty is actually trying to predict what the place will actually do. And there's far too many commentators suggesting that there's a one-size-fits-all approach, because in reality, (laughs) and I'm I'm sure Roger will add some colour to this, that places support the needs and wants of the community that they serve. So it might be that it's a dormitory town where people just commute, and therefore what those places provide to the consumer is very different to what a place provides where people live, work and play within that environment. And that's where I think that people have perhaps got it wrong in the past, trying to homogenize place and create a a template as such, where in reality, differentiation is what matters. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I love the fact that you pulled out the word community there as well. A really important piece of place from, from my personal perspective. I really like the non-cookie cutter approach. I think you absolutely you hear, hear conversations about, oh, well, my local high street's like this or whatever. And actually, you hit the nail on the head. Everywhere is different because it serves different types of residents, different communities and so on. Roger, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm very much in that same place. I think that every place uh, you know, has over a long period of time become its own brand and attracts a variety of different people for that reasons. And, you know, the place itself needs to excel in what they are known for, but also 
look at you know some of their low points as well and see where they can improve just as any brand has to but i think there's a short-term thing and a long-term thing and, and i think like claire said unless you're a futurist around this subject matter and you might have a good punt looking at huge amounts of data over the past two three four five years and you're going to struggle to get a, a real picture there's so many different dynamics involved here because we're not just talking about a retail space or a visitor attraction we're also talking about through the pandemic the way that people are working now is different and that's seeing big organizations particularly saying well actually do we need huge offices lots of people could we could be doing more zooming or microsoft teams and, and this type of thing and therefore don't need to employ so much physical space to get our jobs done but Again, some of those things are quite knee-jerk reactions. You know, we see some of these commentaries going on from significant leaders in some of these uh, organisations without necessarily thinking back to part of their workplace health model and think, you know, we do need human interaction. Some of us work from home very regularly, but we, you know, we, we cry out for a bit of human interaction, uh, you know, <laughs> and uh, we'd be very glad of it when when these times are sort of past us, if you like, but. Some of these things are going to be slow burn and change. And some of them, you know, I think when we get retail back open fully, it'll be a real mixed bag. We're going to see retailers that are sitting on stock that are going to be doing sales and massive price reductions just to, you know, release what will then be old stock Mm. just to kind of release um, money for cash flow for buying newer stuff. And then that will slowly sort of, um, the pain will come out of that, but also how uh, other retailers are going to have to perform or service providers so you know, restaurants you know we hear people saying the first thing i want to do is go out for a meal but your favorite restaurant might only have a, a one quarter one fifth capacity so how easy is that going to be to do i, I think there's a lot of detail that um is going to have to be worked through and we've been speaking to a number of retailers recently finding out about some of their issues and talking to them about you know what solutions uh, that can be worked through uh, and a lot of them are just still in a, in a space of we don't know enough you know we don't know how we're going to do this they're left with so many more questions so it is quite a, an unnerving time for for a lot of these people as well so i think it's going to be a, a shaky start i mean we obviously can see grocery and convenience in a lot of respects and, and some of the others like DIY uh, and, and if you're part of a large chain then you've generally got a fairly good principle uh, and set of instructions on how to handle that but I think you know the pressure at this stage really comes back to the operational teams because you can be in one retailer in two different outlets and seeing them behaving very differently mm. towards how they're treating their customers so I think through this whole space and time right now the emphasis has to be of course safety has got to be paramount but still the emphasis really has to be locked tightly behind that on experience and trying to serve people in the best possible way making them feel a warm welcome making sure they understand how your outlet operates whether you're a visitor center or or, or a retailer and making people helping people to understand how you go into queuing for payment and stuff like that real basics but helping them understand how you're operating making them feel warm and welcome i think that's really interesting and you're right people calling out extreme viewpoints and apocalyptic messages about what's going on but that's arguably nothing new to the world of physical retail you know we've heard about retail apocalypse and death of the high street and all that for (laughs) 
frankly, a little bit too long. (laughs) Why does it evoke those sort of extreme reactions, do you think, Claire? It's been going on ever since, I suppose, uh, back in the days of the, I'd go back as far as the collapse of Woolworths, which I think is 11 years ago now. And then, of course, we had the Cameron Clegg partnership and Mary Porter's brought in to do the review. Mm -hmm. And that was when there was the, the golden ticket to save the high streets. And it was all a bit of political bluster. And some of the real underlying issues, the structural issues, around things like business rates and so on were never really addressed or tackled. Apparently, there's a commitment to tackle that now, but with what's gone on in the last few months and the amount of money the government has had to throw at sort of supporting the sector, it'll be interesting to see if they've actually got the resources to invest in reappraising the whole business rates platform. But it makes good news, doesn't it? They say bad news sells. But actually, one of the reasons I founded the Future High Street Summit back in 2013, as it was, gosh, that makes me feel old, Um, is because at the hyperlocal level, there are micro success stories that when you actually look at what uh, business improvement districts or town centre managers, local authorities, or whoever they are, town teams, what are they doing at the hyperlocal level? And small incremental projects that add up to building the greater good, let's say, there are so many success stories out there and so many great things. It's just that good news doesn't sell. So they're not really getting the platform and the voice that they need. And uh, what I found when working with place managers versus retailers is they're very collaborative because they're not in, apart from perhaps movement of people. So let's say you're Leicester and you're Nottingham and today the population of Nottingham fancy going somewhere else. So they go to Leicester. But then on the flip side, you could have the population of Leicester going to Nottingham. So they're not really in competition with each other. No. There's this natural movement of people to experience a different place for a day. But otherwise, the collaboration between places and the sharing of best practice and ideas and innovation and tools and technologies, I find really refreshing. In fact, what I found in the conferences I ran in the past for retailers, you couldn't get them back from breaks quick enough. They all sat quietly by themselves on their phones, looking at emails and avoiding eye contact. Whereas when you speak to an audience of place managers, they just talk to each other. They just want to share. And it's a very refreshing industry to work within. And certainly that was one of the reasons when I first spoke to Roger about creating grounded places together. I said, it's a really interesting industry because once you've worked with one and done a good job with one, they're happy to tell each other. Whereas what you get in the retail sector, and perhaps that's why, you know, you see some businesses floundering, is that there's almost this reinvent the wheel culture is that they don't want to work with someone who's done something with somebody else just you know in case it affects competitive advantage or Mm. affects the edge that they may have and I I do question actually if that's wise and I do wonder that the retail sector needs to perhaps take a, a leaf from the book of the place management and look to perhaps collaborate with each other more we've seen some of that with the crisis and I think that that's a really positive thing I think it was a screw fix lorry pulling a Morrison's trailer where to get food out in the supply chain so yeah you know you saw people working together a little bit and it'd be nice to see more of that certainly when it was breaking out Mm. but it feels like it's fallen away a little bit or certainly certainly in the public eye it has it does but I mean people are still talking about the issues for example within clothing we talked about old stock and the like well I mean apart from the stock that was merchandised after the January sale a lot of the stock that perhaps would have been mid-season and high-season and spring-summer 2020 has never, ever hit the stores. So actually, from a point of view of newness and visibility of the stock, that's still in warehousing. 
And I did an interview actually for the mail only yesterday about what's happening with that stock. Obviously, there's a huge amount of cancelled orders in the supply chain where retailers have pulled away from commitments to stock. Mm. But apparently, there's a lot of retailers scrabbling around for warehousing space to be able to sort of lay away this stock and perhaps represent it in 2021, which has got interesting ripple effects on the overall supply chain. But if the customers has never seen it and it's not necessarily high fashion, therefore it's not out of fashion, it's it will look new to the customers. What's wrong with bringing that out next year? So there's a whole load of interesting complexities hitting down, not just in terms of the operational activity about whether you're open or closed. Are you handling the safety of your staff and your customers effectively? Do people feel warm and fuzzy feeling? Are they protected? Are they looked after? But also then what's going on behind that? And as you, myself and Roger all know, and probably a lot of the listeners, there's about 18 months worth of supply chain flow somewhere, whether it be in yes. fabric committed to in uh, you know looms in countries far away, or whether it's coloured up, or whether it's cut, or whether it's in production, or whether it's sitting in the warehouse as finished goods. There's an entire probably 18 months worth of retail demand somewhere in the world that needs to be managed through the system. Mm. Obviously, the further up the supply chain is, the less value add has been put to those products. So it's easier to account for in terms of cost and, and um, terms of if necessary wastage. But in reality, we've got a whole bunch of consumers who are now looking at much more conscious fashion and things like that. And I think this has brought it to a fore as well, the whole environmental aspect of consumerism. So I I do wonder what retailers are going to be doing and saying about not just the stock that's sitting in the shops and in the warehouses, but then everything upstream of that. And where is that going to go? Yeah, it's really fascinating. This pandemic has actually shone a huge light on the global supply chain and visibility of all the complexity that goes on in there. And consumer changes will continue. And as we were talking about earlier, we don't have the crystal ball, unfortunately, to see exactly what is going to happen. But I'd be keen to just bring it back to what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago. As you're talking about different cities and towns not being in competition with each other, which I get because of the geography. But inside a city or a town, you have lots of different physical shopping outlets. Maybe it's a mall, maybe it's a a shopping centre, a high street, an out-of-town shopping district. What are the differences you see there where actually someone could jump in a car and visit any of those at any given moment in time? And it's not sort of a big day trip, so to speak. How does that outlook change? Is there going to be a particular surge to one or the other of those? I think that's one for you, Roger. I think it's really interesting. This is about so many different factors, isn't it? This is about choice. It's about things like accessibility. And that can be about, well, I can drive in my car, but my neighbour doesn't have a car, so they have to go where you know where they're restricted to buy a bus, for example. That will partly come down to choice. Mm-hmm. And it is also one of the reasons I'm going there for, because it's really just about shopping, is it? I mean, sometimes, you know, we're talking about the grocery shopping, it can be just in and out. And um, thank you very much. We've got everything that we need and get back on with our lives. But quite often, shopping is surrounded with uh, elements. Perhaps it's an element of uh, socializing or uh, relaxing or even a family event. So it might be a bit of shopping followed by a meal in cinema or, you know, there's a, the whole mix of things. So, you know, I think that high street will struggle to a certain degree we're going to see some further losses but will i think will always be there for us so long as people are 
really concentrating on the element of community and also from a, a, a place of managing a, a, an array of different outlets, we're providing choice within a decent accessible area for people. So Claire and I have been doing some work with uh, Lincoln just recently, yeah. and it's almost split into three parts as you go from down the hill all the way up to the top of the hill. You know, there's a, a different value proposition from one part to another, and there's a dis- different social proposition from one part to another. And it's interesting because Lincoln has, has kind of pretty much got a lot of those things right. But if you, you know, if you only had one coffee shop at the top end of the street, then you've either got the whole market or you might be struggling because you're not providing any choice at all. So it's no good. The choice of one is not really a choice. Mm. Uh, and when there's so many, you end up flooding the market. So there's a balance there between the different outlet types that you have to get right. I think shopping malls might struggle a bit more. Um, on, a, on a generic basis, because that tends to be centred around mainstream shopping, and then uh, you know if they're big enough, then they'll have a, a food centre as well. Now, that's okay if you're uh, in Birmingham, but uh, if you're one, in one of these smaller cities, which is a shopping mall literally just for retail and nothing else, then those sort of spaces may well struggle because they tend to attract main chains and not the independents. And I think there's a lot to be said for the independence in being in tune with local community uh, and having something a bit different and a bit more special to offer quite uh, quite often. Uh, That's not to say that the independents don't need a bit more individual help because they're business people, but they don't necessarily have all the same skills that the larger brands have in terms of managing stock and uh, sell through and uh, understanding range makeup properly and retail marketing and you know, a whole range of other factors. Mm. Different aspects of this have got different strengths and weaknesses. Out of town, uh, I think it depends what the statement outlets are. If you've got true destination retailers like uh, B&Q or uh, Nikea, uh, then they can create, you know, really good draw for a lot of these spaces. But it really does depend because you know, we do see a lot of out of town retail sites that are, that are struggling to maintain some of those retailers so there's going to be winners and losers on a, on a, on a generic level but also on a micro level as well i think it's uh I, i'm not going to try and you know predict <laughs> i'm not a futurist but um <laughs> <laughs> so you can't so you can't name me on that one oliver sorry <laughs> but uh th- th- there's going to be there's going to be significant change i think over time but i think we shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be frightened of that. I think that uh, the local councils, the business development groups, the landlords, uh, you know, they've got an awful lot of work to do to get together to make the best of the new future, of the new normal. I think that's a really excellent point. And just sticking with that theme of sort of collaboration and working together. And, you know, certainly as you think about a shopping trip as being a collection of visits to different stores and cafes or restaurants and cinemas and so on. How should all of these different entities come together and collaborate and work together? Where have you seen it working really well where you've got, you know, big national retailers, independent retailers, different categories and so on? How, what works well? 
This is really funny to me because Claire touched on it earlier on, and I've had this conversation with Claire and a number of other people. My other business, Grounded Shopper, has been running for just short of 10 years. I think it's next month, so get out the balloons later. Definitely. Um, But I've done a lot of work with some fantastic retailers and fantastic brands, and it wasn't so long ago that I turned to one one of my brand clients and said, look, there's a post gone up, and I would really like to comment on that post because it was a fantastic piece of work. And my client turned around to me and said, you can comment on it, but you're not to attach the fact that it's your business that's done the work to achieve that. Mm. And I said, oh, okay. Can I ask without being rude, why is that particularly? And they turned around to me and said, you've got to understand. I've been working with these guys for six years. You've got to understand you're our best kept secret. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, thank you. I can't not the fact that we've been working together all this time and thank you very much. But it's like, hmm. Yet we've been, I mentioned about Lincoln earlier on, we've been doing some work with Sarah Loftus, the Lincoln Business Improvement Group. And Sarah can't wait to get shouting about all the great stuff that we've been doing with her recently and actually speaking to other people about, put the testimonial together, doing a PR statement, all sorts. And just to kind of say, look, other people in my position, this is what you should be doing. These are the people that can help you with these sorts of things. I'm using this just as a, as, as a case study of how there are two different areas working in very, very different ways. Mm. Retailers, as Claire said earlier on, are very much more cloak and tacker. And, uh, and the place management, the, the local authorities and the, the bids and everywhere can't wait to share great stuff with their levy payers and with other communities. So, you know, I'd love to see some sort of within a city or within a local authority, even just within a a bid area, a a whole agreement between levy payers around skills assessment and skills exchange. Why can't the big brands afford some of their experience with some of these smaller independents, you know, a mentoring system or something to help them improve their visual merchandising or improve their uh, uh, social media skills or or something along those lines. But I can equally see how they probably wouldn't want to use the resources for that because it would be taken away from what they're doing. It's interesting you mention that, Roger, because actually I mentioned about 10 years ago the Portis Review, and one of the 28 recommendations that Mary Portis came out with, which I refuted at the time, was that big businesses should be able to afford the staff from their stores to mentor and support the small businesses. Mm-hmm. I refuted it was because actually if you think about it and we've both worked in chain retail the skill set of a store manager is to manage that store to uh, adopt policies practices procedures receive visual merchandising instructions and actually it's a it's a team management job it's to make sure that the cost center becomes a profit center and performs according to plan they don't have to install their own printer, deal with BT, uh, work out who's going to come and do the decorating, print the posters, design the posters, because that's all done for them because they've got central functions for that. And I actually said that the problem was that small retailers are doing absolutely everything themselves but often fail to outsource when they should versus big retailers who have kind of it all handed on a plate. And as we've talked about when we've done the skills work with the likes of Lincoln, the big guys Either they're not allowed to attend such things because of corporate guidelines and so on, it's not what they're paid for, or it's something that they wouldn't need to attend because they have a team for that back at the ivory tower. Mm, yeah. Whereas the small guys are trying to do everything themselves. <laughs> I think there is a bit of an issue between that gap in skills, but certainly with regard to collaboration, one of the things I 
talk to my small business clients about is know your neighbours. You are all fighting for share of wallets. So whether you're a restaurant or a boutique or a food store, whatever you might be, yes, okay, you're all in competition with each other for a limited amount of discretionary spend that your consumer may have. However, they're not going to always spend with just one. Today they need shoes, tomorrow they want to buy some nice cheese and the next day they want to go out for a meal. So working mm. collaboratively within high streets, I think, is the way forward. And whether that be a high street, a retail park or a shopping centre, if you have that cohesive brand proposition and everybody working together, then it becomes a great experience. And the phrase I've used often with place managers is the rotten apple spoils the cart. So if you've got an amazing high street and one gleamingly obvious dilapidated retailer who has got horrible signage, a, a rundown storefront and simply looks like they belong back in the 70s, that isn't going to support the experience of walking through that street. So the one thing that I believe that retail parks and shopping centres have as the edge over high streets is overarching management infrastructure. They have a marketing team, a brand team, a PR team. They do events and activities. And the retailers are forced to play along as part of their agreement to occupy that space. Whereas in a high street, you've got multiple disparate stakeholders. It could be an institutional pension fund, a private landlord or the local authority. And there's no cohesive management. And that's where we come back to the role of business improvement districts they are there to provide that umbrella cohesive management for a place that doesn't otherwise have it. But unfortunately, I feel that, and it's something I've talked to the BRC about as well, um, Helen Dickinson her, and I have had many a conversation about how retailers need to understand at the hyperlocal level where they are paying into a business improvement district, because often they're the biggest rate payers, they're the biggest contributors to a bid fund. And yet the store manager doesn't even know they're part of a bid. They're not empowered to go to meetings and contribute their thoughts. And the marketing team are disconnected from a finance or property team. Somebody's paying a levy, but nobody's capitalizing on it. Mm. So they're not putting posters in the store to say, we support the Lincoln Business Improvement Group. We pay X million pounds a year. And, and that money goes towards this, this and this. In, a, in the same way, you know, you see on a charity, your two pounds will go towards providing a vaccine for a child and all that. You don't see that in the window of a Boots or a Costa or a Smith's or any of those retailers you'd classically find on a high street. And they are not capitalizing on the fact that they are part of the business improvement district. They simply pay the bill. So in reality, the people that vote the business improvement district in, in the majority are the small businesses who pay the least. The big businesses who, as a result of rateable value, pay the most, have least voice and least influence. But I think that's because there is a massive opportunity to now talk to large companies and say, how many business improvement districts are you funding? What are you doing about that? How have you empowered your store managers? What are your marketing teams doing to shout to the public, we are supporting this place for X million a year, and these are the initiatives we've got behind and I think that only when everything joins together and there's connectedness between big and small and the place management will the high street be able to compete effectively with the likes of a retail park or a shopping centre because then finally they'll have cohesive management and cohesive voice. And that's a really important point, absolutely, as you say. You know, I love that analogy yeah. of the, the rotten apple in the cart. Is that what you're doing at Grounded Places, helping local places, business improvement districts, and so on. <laughs> Roger polishes the apples while I make sure that they're actually profitable. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you run a fruit and veg market, is that right? <laughs> yeah, of course us out. Yeah, absolutely right. 
I think one of the interesting things is both having come from a corporate background is we're doing more to help the independents these days, seeing the fact that, you know, the big businesses have got access or more, more easily accessible to information around all of these subjects like retail marketing, like space planning, lots of tools in which to uh, improve their business. I'm not saying they all use them wisely, but the independents have got probably less so. They might excel in a particular area. I'm sure a lot of independent fashion retailers have got a wonderful eye for visual merchandising and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of areas that they are, are struggling with. They're, they're pushing hard. They're doing long days, uh, long weeks, and just w- would not have that capability to, ca- you know, to, to carry all of those skills that are needed to to excel so whereas you know you've got the the authorities and the business improvement districts working their hardest to bring more and more shoppers visitors you know through event through various different programs um we see it as a great opportunity to actually help the independents via the 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 bids and, and authorities to support the levy payers by improving their their skills and the, the biggest part of that for our, for us is not the big boys that are already think they can do it all, but uh, some of the independents that understand that need that bit much more help. So, um, yeah, that's that's what's tending to happen, isn't it, really, Claire? Mm. And I think the, the importance is that, uh, you know, these, these organisations, whether they be your local authority or a business improvement district, the retailers and the businesses that operate within the remit are putting money towards those organisations, whether they know it or not. And the responsibility of those organisations is to maximise the public realm and the visitor experience outside of the shop front. And they are, they are literally throwing footfall past people's shops. Now, it's down to those businesses themselves to convert those people that are passing by into people that cross the threshold and become profitable customers and, and transact profitable sales. And what we're trying to do with Grounded Places is to work with the business improvement districts and the authorities say, you're doing an amazing job of throwing footfall past these shops, but they're not converting it. They're complaining that you're not doing your job, but in reality, they're not doing theirs. And it's quite a harsh reality. But everything from the shopfront improvement schemes, where you know, a bit of shabby paintwork, it only takes a little paint to make something look better, to decent signage, having the lights on, and being able to actually see what is it that this shop sells. But then that's just the first point. We get the, the customer across the threshold. And once they're in there, we need to know that the product on the shelf is actually going to make a profit. Because one of the failings I find with a lot of independent retailers is they're making plenty of sales. I mean, I, I've worked with companies that are selling up to a million pounds of goods a year. And they're making zero profit because there's no margin on those mm. goods. Whereas they could sell half the amount of goods and make a significant amount more profit if they were just a little bit more savvy with the way they actually analyze their product offering and their pricing. So what Roger and I do is help the business improvement districts and the local authorities to deliver that skill set around how do I look and how do I trade to the businesses, whether they be retail, hospitality or leisure in, in reality, so that they can be sustainable and profitable businesses. You don't get the churn, you don't get the closures, you don't get somebody losing their life savings in reality because they decided to open a shop and the whole thing fell on its face. So it's it's about protecting their future and ensuring that they're sustainable, profitable businesses that look good for the greater benefit of all of those around them. And as long as, you know, you get back to that rotten apple spoiling the cart, as long as all of them 
try their very best to present themselves in the best possible way, then the street scene improves. It becomes a destination. It becomes a visitor experience. And it's not just about the individual store. It's about the whole. And that's when places are successful. But places are not just successful as a result of the businesses that trade there. They also need to invest in the public realm. Clean and tidy bins, quality signage, wayfinding. There's so many other factors that come into it. But actually, if you think about it from a consumer's point of view, you need to be in a place that looks good, feels good, feels safe, and you can find what you need to find, whether you're there for work, socializing, or shopping, or whatever the uh, visit purpose may be. And I think that that's the crux. It's not that complicated at the higher level. It's common sense, really. But in the detail, as always, the devil's in the detail. Of course. It takes lots of effort to make a place an appealing place and to compete with a and other place. But in, in reality, it all boils down to the exact same thing, whether you're a retailer or a place manager or any other business. It's about knowing your customer and giving them the experience that they need at the time they need it. So opening hours are really important. So being available in the right way, offering the right service and proposition at the right time. And that's the fundamentals of marketing. It's basically get your marketing right and the jobs are good. The way that we've been doing that for Grounded Shopper for the last 10 years, and Claire and I have carried this forward into some of our work, is talking to people about what the customer experience is like. And you can do this at a macro level on, on, a, on a town centre, or you can do it at you know buying from a category. Um, but there's three different parts to it. So imagine in your mind's eye that you've got a Venn diagram in front of you uh, right now, and we're, we're heading for that ultimate experience. And we talk about the three components of that is the emotional sector, and it's about how does it make you feel. The functional part of being able to go through the process, does it do what you want it to do? And then the other part being accessible, and that is how easy is it for you to do what you want to do? And if you have one of those components missing, then you're causing friction somewhere along the journey or just turning people off completely. So it's really keeping those top of mind for people either a planning stage or execution stage, and whether that's at the town centre basis or within my store, within this particular category, and everything in between. And all of a sudden, you start to have a little bit of a different perspective on what you need to be doing or what you should be doing to improve that experience. I love it. And that works for a visitor centre, a retail space, a coffee shop. It's quite an interesting proposition because we're, we're keeping it simple even if the dynamics behind that are really you know a lot more intricate i i love that outlook and i totally agree with you i'm i'm a big believer in actually we've overcomplicated retail recently we've made it more difficult than it needs to be and actually there are some really fundamentals which haven't changed in many ways from you know 20 30 50 100 200 years ago and actually that's what we need to be getting back to to really make sure that we're appealing to to customers and shoppers, ultimately. Claire, Roger, this has been a lot of fun. I'm really keen to ask how people can get in touch with you if they want to continue the conversation or if they're looking for help with their place. Okay, well, it's really quite simple. We've got our email addresses. Uh, Claire is C-L-A-R-E, and Roger is spelled as you'd expect, R-O-G-E-R, and then it's just at groundedplaces.com. So anyone can email us at any time. And if you've forgotten our names, then just go to groundedplaces.com and fill out a form on there and get in touch. Super. So groundedplaces.com, 
or Claire at, or Roger at, no I and Claire as well, by the way. No, no D and Roger on this occasion. <laughs> no D and Roger. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> so, Claire, Roger, thank you so much for joining me on the Retail Transformation Show and for sharing all of those golden nuggets as well once again. It was a pleasure, Oliver. Oliver, thank you very much. You're very welcome. So that was Claire Bailey and Roger Smith. And I'm going to put those contact details on the show notes page today, which is obandco.uk slash 86. And just before we do wrap up this episode, remember, grab your free ticket for Retail Transformation Live. This is the virtual event on the 9th of July. And it's all about helping you to get future fit. Now that physical retail is going, we've got to make sure that we think further ahead and get fit for the future. Just because the doors are open, it doesn't mean everything will be rosy in the future. So let's get future fit together. Make sure you sign up for Retail Transformation Live at retailtransformation.live. And I will very much look forward to seeing you at the virtual event. Thanks for joining and do remember to hit subscribe for future episodes. Catch you soon. Bye.